Now, last week we looked at a number of ways of making the Lord's Prayer personal and living to us. You know, the sermon is online and it's on our website if you missed it. But we looked at a, a fresh way of the looking at the Lord's Prayer. For when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. It's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer that's been treasured by the church for the last two thousand years and rightly so but in many respects it's not the lord's prayer it's the disciples prayer it's the believers prayer it's a prayer for sinful and broken people and jesus was never sinful or broken and so we would be better off i'm not suggesting we make the change but it would be more accurate to call the lord's prayer the believers prayer Now, to find the real Lord's Prayer, we have to go elsewhere in the Bible. And if we go to John chapter 17, we find Jesus praying in depth and at length. In many respects, we can call John 17 the real Lord's Prayer. Now, before we open up and explore that, let's ourselves pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We pray that as we explore this wonderful prayer that you will share with us something of the beauty and the character of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray this through his name. Amen. You can tell a lot about people by the way they pray. Let me read you a poem, a poem called A Prayer by Cyrus Brown by Sam Walter Frost. The proper way... For man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. Nay, I should say, the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and a head contritely bowed it seems to me his hand should be astutely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground said the very reverend hunt last year i fell in hodgkin's well head first said cyrus brown with both my heels a sticking up and my head a pointing down and i made a prayer right there and then best prayer i ever prayed the prayiest prayer I ever prayed, a standing on my head. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. A French fisherman prayed this prayer, and a copy of this prayer was kept on the desk of US President Jimmy Carter. Very short prayer, and the prayer was this. Lord, the sea is so big and my boat is so small. Be with me wonderful prayer isn't it you can tell a lot about people by the way they pray an 18th century businessman prayed like this O lord thou knowest that i have nine properties in the city of london and have lately purchased a property in the county of essex i ask thee to preserve london and essex from fire and earthquake and for the rest of the counties you may deal with them as you please also you have said that the days of the wicked are short 
I trust in you that you will not forget this promise, as I have purchased the rights on an estate, which will be mine on the death of a decadent young man, Sir J.L. Keep my friends from sinking, and preserve me from thieves and housebreakers. Make all my servants so honest and faithful that they may attend to my interests and never cheat me out of my property night or day. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. And finally, we see this in Luke chapter 18, as the Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple to pray. Now, when the Pharisee prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other men, especially that tax collector. And when the tax collector said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, we knew more about each person's character than the content of their prayer. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. So when we turn to John 17 and the prayer of Jesus, we are on holy ground. Because here we have the heart of Jesus on display in a way that's very different than when he's teaching or when he's talking to the disciples or when he's performing miracles. Now we could spend a lot of time uh, and become better prayers by looking at the structure and the content and that's a good thing to do another time. But today we're going to listen to the Lord's Prayer to capture something of the heart and the character of Jesus. And of course, as we fall in love with Jesus and amazed with him, we will become better prayers naturally. So what's the background of John 17? Well, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He and his disciples have had their final meal together. Now Judas has departed into the night and is in the process of betraying Jesus. And so once Judas is gone, Jesus speaks his final words and then finishes with this prayer. After this prayer, he will go out into the night himself to betrayal and death. But before he does, he prays this prayer. And with it, we have a wonderful insight into the heart of Jesus. So what does this prayer tell us about Jesus? Well, first of all, it tells us who Jesus' number one is. Who was Jesus' number one? John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Father, the time has come. How can we not notice? How can we not be struck by that wonderful intimate relationship between Jesus and his Father? Five times in this prayer, Jesus refers to his Father, a sign of that intimate and very close relationship they have. That whole fatherhood of God that Jesus recognizes and love is a golden thread that weaves its way through the strands that make up this prayer. Jesus prays as one who had this relationship with God not only from his childhood, but before his birth, for even before creation, God was Jesus' Father. Now we contrast that with ourselves. Uh, if we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 26, when it comes to prayer for us, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. What a contrast. 
you know, we struggle with our prayer, and wonderfully the Holy Spirit helps us with our prayer. But Jesus never had the struggle that we have because they had such a wonderful, intimate relationship. And this closeness, this intimacy is a little like this. Let me tell you a story about a father who had a son called John. Now, John was an athletic young man in his final year at high school. He was the apple of his father's eye. And then John, at the beginning of the season, had a knee injury that not only saw him in hospital, but saw him miss the game for months. This was devastating to the young lad. He lived for his sport. Now, one time the father came home from work and he couldn't find his son, so he went upstairs and noticed that the the door to his son's bedroom was cracked open a little bit, so he quietly went up to the door and he heard his son sobbing on his bed. And, of course, his father was deeply moved and, and he wrote... As I listened to my son cry, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what to say. So I stood outside the door and listened to him cry. And then I said to myself, I will go in and say, John, it's okay. We're going to beat this thing. We're going to ask the Lord to help us. And we're going to go to the best doctors and we're going to beat this thing. So finally, the father pushed open the door and walked in. But of course, he became overcome. And the dad's eyes filled with tears. And he put his head on his son's shoulder. And the son looked up. And then he said, Dad, it's okay. We're going to beat this thing. We'll ask the Lord to lead us. And we'll beat this thing. We can do it together. In other words, the son said to the father what the father was going to say to the son. And this is what's happening In John 17, for the first and the second members of the Trinity are so much in tune that the Son knows what's on the Father's heart and he prays because they are so in tune. Now, do you think that's possible with us? Do you think we could do that? Do you think we could go in prayer and be so in tune with our Heavenly Father that we know what's on his heart and pray? Well, I think we can, because we have the Lord's Prayer, which tells us what's on his heart. We have the Word of God, which tells us what's on his heart. And as we walk with God, as we develop that personal relationship with the Father, we begin to have the sense of what's on the Father's heart. Now, it's not easy. We can't do this in our own strength. We need Romans 8, 26. Let me read it to you again. We need the Holy Spirit's help, and this time from the message the message version of the Bible, Romans 8:26. God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. We don't know how or what to pray. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. Now, I may not be pretty good at praying, but I'm pretty good at aching sighs or aching groans and wordless sighs. How about you? Well, they can be our prayers to God. Now, he wants us to grow more, of course, but isn't it wonderful that we have the Holy Spirit? And so, as we grow in prayer, there will be times when our heart's prayer will match the Father's heart. And that's a wonderful thing to aim for. So that's the first thing we can learn from this, is that Jesus, his number one, was his heavenly Father. 
Now, the second thing we can learn from this prayer is that Jesus lived a perfect life. Now, how do we see this in the prayer? Well, we actually see this in the prayer from what is missing. You see, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, one of the phrases he said for the disciples to pray was, forgive us our sins. And so you'd think that Jesus, when he prayed, he would lead by example. That as a good teacher, he would say, well, this is how you pray, forgive us our sins. But he doesn't. In fact, nowhere in the Gospels do you see Jesus praying or asking God for forgiveness. Why? Because he had no sin. He was without defect. He was absolutely and totally living a perfect life. Amazing, isn't it? And on this night, the night of John 17, the night of Passover, this perfection, this being without defect has tremendous implication because of the Passover. Let me explain. If we go back to Exodus 12, we read the background of the Passover. Uh, The people of God were waiting to escape from Egypt from slavery. There had been nine plagues, nine wonders and miracles that had um, laid upon the Egyptian people. And even then, the Pharaoh would not let them go. But God had the tenth and final plague, the miracle, the wonder, ready to go. And so through Moses, God instructed every human, every Hebrew family to take a lamb lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect, and they were to kill the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the lintels of their doors. Why? So that when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts, the angel death would pass over that household. And of course, that's what happened on the night. The angel of death passed over the Hebrew families But those Egyptian families that did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, their eldest was killed. And it was because they had the blood of the lamb without defeat that the Israelite families were spared. They sheltered under the blood. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus was going to. He was going to die, to be betrayed. And because he was perfect and spotless, when we shelter under the blood of Jesus, we are saved. Uh, We remember back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, refers to Christ as our Passover Lamb. And so, in this prayer we see something of the perfection of Christ, and because of that, his death on the cross and his blood counts us worthy as we shelter under that blood. So that's the second thing that we see from this prayer. The character of Jesus not only was his heavenly Father number one, but we see that his life was perfect and earned our forgiveness. Now, the third thing we see in this prayer is that Christ lived an obedient life. And we see this back in John chapter 17, verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus completed the work that his father had sent him to do. How often have we been able to pray, Lord, 
today I did everything that you expected from me. Or at the end of the week, how many of us can say, I have been at the centre of your will each day, each week? Well, to be honest, it's impossible for us to do that perfectly, isn't it? Uh, we, we may struggle or we may not even bother. Here's an, uh, what I call controlled disobedience. Have you come across this? I'll give you a quote. A lot of people feel free to sow their wild oats all week, but then come to church on Sunday and pray for crop failure. Controlled disobedience. I'll read that again. It's quite good, isn't it? A lot of people pray, feel free to sow their wild oats all week, but then come to church on Sunday and pray for crop failure. Because we struggle with disobedience. Some of us think, what's the minimum I can do to please God? And then everything else I'll just ask forgiveness for. And that's not the way to be a disciple of Jesus. That's not how it works. Now, I believe we underestimate the connection between obedience and answered prayer. A preacher by the name of Stephen Brown has a useful illustration that makes this connection between answered prayer and obedience and he writes like this if I send my children to the store to buy something for me and they don't have the money then their problem is my problem because they're acting in obedience to me imagine that imagine imagine you've got a a child a a primary age child and you send them to the store to get get some milk and you don't give them the money (laughs) they would be able to say hey dad we need some money and of course you would give it to them And it's similar when it comes to God. When he asks us to do something and we obey, he will provide the resources. He will answer the prayer in the same way that if we tell our child to go down to the dairy to get some milk and they say, well, I need some money, Dad, then of course we give them the money and they are obedient. Well, it's a little bit like this. He goes on to say, well, if I tell my children to mow the lawn, then their safety as they handle the law noir, is my responsibility and my problem. Because they, the children, are acting in obedience, I take care of it. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. When he asks us to do something, which we read in his word and we do it, then he will look after us in the same way that a parent will look after an obedient child. Yes, Christ was obedient in every single way. Now, we fall short and we need God's grace. But instead of being like the example of those that sow their oats and only come to church to ask forgiveness, we put that style of of, of, of being a Christian right away and we say, Lord, how can I follow? How can I obey you? Now, the fourth thing we know about Jesus' character, not only that Father was number one, not only was he uh, without sin, not only was he obedient, but he also had heartache. Heartache. Jesus came into the world on a mission to seek the lost. He proclaimed the good news and offered healing and new life to all who would accept it. But many did not accept it. Most, in fact, did not accept the most wonderful gift ever conceived, ever offered. It was instead rejected then and by many and is today rejected by many. And this was the risk that God took. When God created us, he created humans with free will. The ability to say yes or no, to accept or reject God. And Jesus knew this rejection. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was doing while he was praying this prayer. The disciples thought that Judas was out on an errand. 
and they didn't give it a second thought. But while Jesus was praying this prayer, he knew that Jesus, Judas was betraying him to his death. However, Jesus accepted this heartache and went to the cross anyway. In verse 17, verse 9, we read this. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but those you have given me, for they are yours. Here Jesus narrows his focus to the believers, both those in front of him and those who were to come for us. Uh, God, um, Jesus focuses his prayer on those who will believe. While his heart was aching for those that would not believe. And though his heart ached, Jesus did not feel guilty. Jesus did not feel a failure. Jesus didn't give up and he didn't grow cynical. Jesus accepts with joy those who believe in him and leaves the others in God's hand. And finally from this prayer, we capture a sense of Christ's joy. Uh, Verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So Jesus is talking about his joy, and then that his joy that he has comes to us. Now what is that joy that he has? Well, that joy in some respects will be heightened because he knows that he will soon be back with his heavenly Father. For the last 33 years, the King of Glory had been constrained and restricted by a frail human body. Jesus had known hunger like we know hunger. He had known pain like we know pain. He had known tiredness like we know tiredness. And he was about to go home to be with his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit in complete and perfect communion. So no wonder we read of his joy here. But this was more than a joy that that was just because he was about to go home. This was a joy that characterized his whole life from when he was a baby laughing on Joseph's knee to the final three years of his ministry. And we read of this joy even as he faces the cross in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The joy of Jesus, even on the night he was betrayed. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him. And this is the joy that Jesus is praying here that will be in our lives. No wonder the Apostle Paul was to later write, um, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, Rejoice! Now if we want to take stock, if we want to gauge our spiritual health, then one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is this, How much joy is in my life? Now, we may be going through some tough times. We may be going through some average times, or we may be in a wonderful part of our life, wonderful times. But at our core, at our center, is the joy of Christ firm. Now, it may only be a spark. Some Christians struggle with depression. Some Christians are going through really difficult times. But even then, there is a joy deep down, which is the love of Christ that will never leave you. 
So if you want to gauge your spiritual health, if you want to know where your spiritual temperature is, reflect on where joy is in your life. And if you are lacking, come to God in prayer and say, Lord, give me that joy of my first salvation. Give me that joy of knowing of your great love for me. Yes, uh, the fifth thing that we've learned about the character of Jesus is that he knew and experienced joy even when he was going to the cross. And we too can experience this joy, as Jesus said, in full measure, not just partly or mostly, but Jesus says here and now we can experience his joy in full measure. Now I want to finish with this, a final question before I sum up. Where is Jesus now? And I've mentioned this a couple of times over the last few weeks, and so we should know. Where is Jesus now? Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, also interceding for us. So will Christ condemn us? He will never condemn us, as long as we look to him. And what is he doing now? He is praying... John 17, for you and I, at God the Father's right hand, and more. Now, it's the Holy Spirit's role to make sure that Jesus is alive in our hearts, and that's wonderful, isn't it? And it's the Holy Spirit's role to make us or to encourage us, uh, to move us close to our Heavenly Father and Jesus. But at the moment, Jesus is at the right hand. He's praying for you and I. He's praying that the joy that was set before him, even though it meant enduring the cross, he is praying that that will come into our lives and spill over and overflow. And so in all this, with the knowledge that Christ prayed for us on the night that he was uh, betrayed, and that he is still praying for us today, isn't this cause for wonderful joy? And here we have a wonderful model for prayer and a wonderful saviour to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the prayer in John 17 that we can catch a glimpse of Christ's heart in a way that we don't really do in other parts of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that that joy that Jesus asked for us to overflow will be in our lives and that all those other areas of prayer where you are the number one in our life and that we will be marked by obedience, Lord, and Lord, that we will strive to please you in all that we do. We pray that these thing, these threads that run through the prayer of in John 17 will run through our prayer life as well. Thank you, Lord, that um, we come before you by the grace of Christ and not on our own strength. Through his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.